Hi, everybody. It's Aaron Solomon, and welcome to the Next Level Podcast. We have a great guest, and we're right near the end of season two of the podcast. And we have with us today from, I want to say Paris, but I know you've moved, so it's maybe not technically Paris, or maybe it is. We're going to discuss that. But uh, we have with us Angela Natividad, and I want to make sure that I pronounce your last name correctly. Um, someone I've known on Twitter for pretty much a decade, and you are the co-founder of the esports agency Hurrah uh, that we've talked about before, also co-author of Generation Creation, a wonderfully bright person, and it's so awesome to have you on the podcast today. Thank you, Aaron. It's a pleasure. You did pronounce my name correctly, and I am still in Paris. I've just moved to the other side of it. Yes, yeah, so so I was looking at that, and uh, you know, as you know, I've been in Paris. Obviously, not anywhere near as much as you have, but I know it fairly well. So, are you, are you like near the eighteenth? Um, that side? Yes, that's right. Okay. I'm in Montmartre, just under gotcha. the. Yeah. Perfect. Well, we're going to talk about Paris. Listen, we're going to talk about Paris for sure. One thing I want to start off with is now that I'm back in Montreal, having left Europe, I want to say you know Paris has a lot of things over Montreal. But I think in Montreal, we have much more creative swear words. <laughs> so did you know, did you know that the word, the French word for chives, like okay. the chives, yeah, is a big swear word in Quebec, ciboulette. How is that a swear word? The thing in Quebec, in the province of Quebec, in my hometown of Montreal, where I'm back, is you can almost say anything with a certain intonation and it becomes a great swear word. But honestly, chives is a swear word. If you say it like this, ciboulette, it's a swear word. And I would always say, I'm like, wait, they're saying chives. I love chives. Wait, but I require further elaboration. Like, in what context would you say this? Can you give me oh, you, oh, Of course. You would say it like, for example, you are in your car. And, you know, I learned how to drive in Montreal like 8,000 years ago. So I'm always amused with Montreal drivers because I'm able to predict the, the terrible things they're going to do because I do them. Yeah. So somebody cuts you off, you know, as you're pulling near the bagel shop, because in Montreal, all we do is spend our time in bagel shops. And, uh, and <laughs> someone cuts you off and you go, ciboulette. Now, it's not the only one you could pick. There's lots of other swears. Most of them are very, very religious. By the way, another one that we do is pick your favorite saint, any saint that you like. And, um, even if, and, and you use it in a swear. So we have like Saint Sauveur, which is one of our ski resorts about a half hour from the city. And if you just say Saint Sauveur like that, it's a swear. It doesn't matter what saint. Nope, pick a saint. I don't know, Saint Angèle. Yep, that's great, perfect. Um, Saint Zotique, which is one of the streets right near where I live. But you gotta say it with the real thing and in Montreal, if you can do it with a little bit more of like a French French accent rather than a Quebecois accent, it gets a little bit of oomph. Hold on, let me think about this. I'm trying to find a complicated one that would be difficult to convey as a swear. Sure. Sainte Geneviève. Oh, no, oh, that would be so good. Oh my gosh, you might be stuck <laughs> in Montreal if you did that. I don't know, we'll see. This is, I think this is an entirely separate episodes where we can get a panel and we can do swears of the world. Wait, do you think that this is, okay, so I have a theory about this, but I'm not sure if it's true because I'm just making it up. Um, Those are the best so, theories. <laughs> so I had an ex-boyfriend who had a father 
and his father was explaining to me that uh you know how in france people are always making fun of the quebecois accent because it's a bit bizarre um you know just to to french ears not necessarily to quebecois ears but um he said uh, actually the quebecois accent is closer to the original french because the people who settled quebec um, came from a small village in the middle of France, so their French evolved in a different way, but in many ways in a more pure way, because of course you know that um, the Académie Française and French in general in France, it went through many transitions to make it prettier, like that was sure. objectively the goal. Um, so do you think, okay, so do you think that the religious and also maybe, um, um, what's a word that I could use? Provincial nature of Quebecois swear words is related to this idea that it might come from a more provincial place in France? So, I mean, my first reaction to that is it makes a lot of sense, right? But okay. then I also think about, you know, traveling through France. Mm -hmm. So while I love Paris, I mean, obviously like, you know, there's nothing about Paris not to love and also probably hate at the same time. In the past three or four years, I spent a lot of time in places like Reims, which is very close, Sure. Jean, um, Montpellier, and like, so the accents, even in the more rural spots, even an hour or so away from the city, is nothing like a Quebecois accent in the fact that even though I, I mean, French is my second language of several, I understand it pretty well, I speak it decently. There are okay. times when I'm even watching TV in Quebec, and if it's somebody with a rural accent, I'm lost. I can turn on TV5 and I can understand every single word all the time. Sure. So, I, but I think there's something to that about that kind of like elemental nature of it and how the swears and colloquialisms grow out of that. Can I tell you my favorite French swear word? Yeah, of course. No one understands French on this podcast anyway. We could just speak French and swear the whole time. <laughs> so one of the things that I really love about French is the variance of the swear words. So you can have very bucolic swear words like lavash. I don't even know if that counts as a swear, um, which just means the cow, right? Yeah. Like when you're frustrated. Um, but uh, my favorite one that I've probably used, I think uh, you know this, knowing several languages, but sometimes you don't really have the nuance of a, of a language. So you might say things that are offensive unintentionally because you don't really know what impacts they have. So um, definitely I've used this in contexts that were completely inappropriate. Um, bordel de bites. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely my favorite one which means uh i can translate it right yeah go horse of course okay whorehouse whore of dicks yes <laughs> i like this the people in spotify right now are just like gotta put a warning on that one gotta put a warning on this episode Here we usually go. they just talk about nice things <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. But listen, even Lavash. Okay, so I'm sure you know that there's a little cheese company called Baby Bell. Yes. And they have a cheese called Lavash Kiri. I would <laughs> tell you in Quebec, if I said to someone the next time they cut me off, if I opened my window as I always do and I yelled, Lavash Kiri, it would be a great swear. <laughs> even though I'm just saying the cow that laughs, the laughing cow is the name of the cheese. You so could do anything. More intonation than it's the intonation. Phrase. Totally. It's the intonation. It could be even like the birthday cow. If you said it in a certain way, it would get it. Now, listen, let's talk about, since we're talking about France, I got to ask you this right away. I got to ask you this right away. You're a coffee lover? Yes, absolutely. What's your favorite place in Paris for coffee? And I will give you my two after you give me yours. I know it's hard because like Montreal, like Berlin, where I just came from, the coffee's amazing. 
in my opinion, at least. So where are your couple favorite spots to have coffee? It doesn't mean it's necessarily just the best coffee, but the place you like to go for coffee. Please don't say McDonald's. Go ahead. Oh God, no. Uh, although I do find that uh, the coffee, McDonald's coffee in Europe is much better for- Much better. Probably obvious reasons, yeah. Oh, um, it's the go-to when I'm in Charles de Gaulle. There's no doubt. With the other places <laughs> in there, I'd get a coffee at McDonald's. Yeah, exactly. It's better than getting a coffee at like Relay, for example. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I think uh, to start with, I don't think that this is probably going to be like sacrilege, but compared to Italy, for example, I don't think that France has especially wonderful coffee. Okay. But, um, but uh, just for sentimental reasons, one of the first cafes that I went to, I was living near the Marais at the time, was uh, La Prune beside the Canal Saint-Martin. Okay. And it's a sort of divey place. I don't know that they would consider coffee their specialty, but they do operate as a cafe. And, um, you know, but they also become like a basic neighborhood bar at night. And, uh, and I really like it for, because you can just go and get a very basic espresso. And um, you can just sit there by the canal and have a day. And that's yeah. like to get coffee. Yeah. What about you? So I got two. So, um, and they're both very like third wave. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're very like, oh, we're having hipster coffee, but that's the way it is. So the first one is actually close to somewhere you probably wouldn't frequent all the time. The Gare de l'Est is saint Pai. Okay. So saint Pai is really good. It's just very much like we do pour over, you know, we're super fancy. It's also a great little restaurant. Oh, and that's yeah. one I discovered a few years ago. Very, very good. But okay. if I could only pick one, I would pick right near Odeon. Yes. the coffee at l'institut finlandais so this is what? for people who don't know yes so so now if you want to talk about attitude take <laughs> paris and put a finlandic institute of culture in the middle of the city in one of the best parts of town and then do scandinavian coffee i'm surprised they even put liquid i thought they would just put ethereal foams But it's so good. I mean, I, I love Scandinavian coffee, lived in Scandinavia, so that's my style. In fact, even here in Montreal, the beans that I use are from Tim Wendelbo in Oslo because a place here brings them in. So that's very much my style. Black coffee, pour over or filter, very, very dark. Um, and Lancetou, plus it's a, if you've never been, it's such a stunning place to sit and drink coffee. They have their cafe and it's amazing. Yeah, I heard they're very well known for their patisserie, which leads me to my next question. Is the coffee fancy? Or is well, it very cut and dry? So Finns, you know, this is a little known fact. You probably don't know this, although you're a very, very knowledgeable person. Finns drink by law. They have to, by law, drink seven <laughs> liters of coffee a day. And this is even when you turn one, you have to have seven liters of coffee a day. You're allowed to have other liquids, but it has to be black coffee and it has to be seven liters a day. And that's probably why the hockey culture in Finland is so good is after all that coffee, they just have to get on the ice and burn off some energy. Interesting. This tracks because when I was in college, I learned, uh, speaking of Scandinavians, um, the biggest coffee drinking culture in the world are the Norwegians. They drink something like five or six coffee cups a day on average. So. I, I'd love to be like them. My problem is, is that even before my old age, like one good cup of coffee was pretty much it. Sometimes if it's a particularly rough day with work, maybe there'll be an espresso thrown in some you know, somewhere. But, and I got to tell you, it's funny, you mentioned Italy about coffee. So yeah. we live in, in little Italy in Montreal. 
And Little Italy is actually more Italian than all the Italian cities we visited over the past few years. The coffee in Little Italy, Montreal, rivals the best coffee in like Bologna and Venice. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. Oh, interesting. This is fascinating. Okay, wait, hold on. I have, yes. since we're talking about coffee, um, I have an interesting anecdote for you about coffee. So one of the things that uh, I've become interested in over the past few years is plants. So I'm studying just herbalism, like it's sort of a geeky hobby. And um, there's this man who was a programmer in Berkeley, but who was also an ethnobotanist called Dale Pendle. And he wrote an entire series about a pharmacoi, you know, this, this Greek notion of plants as entities that both heal and harm depending on the dose. Hmm. And uh, so he was talking about uh, the kinds of drugs that are welcomed into the into a culture and what they say about a culture and also um, the, the nature of a drug and the, the basic nature of the plant that um, that they sort of express and uh, and coffee has a you know like we we drink it to wake up it's a stimulant but it also has a kind of basic volatility. And, uh, and one of the stories that he tells about coffee is um, that it can actually be tied to the French Revolution because uh, when coffee came out in France, it first came out uh, at this place called Café Procope, which was uh, around 1689. And you can still go to Café Procope today. Like it's very fancy now. Well, maybe you can't go today because everything is closed in France right now. Yeah. But it still exists in the fifth or the sixth maybe, but around the fifth. And, um, and so Café Procope, when coffee was introduced there, was where all of the intellectuals would come and they would argue about, uh, about the nature of culture and also about governance. And they got so hopped up that Pendle argues it is partly because of coffee and because of these meetings that they ultimately ended, like they ultimately ended up initiating the revolution. So one thing, I, that's a great story. I'm definitely gonna remember that. And one thing I wanna say is the next swear that I use here in Montreal is gonna be Café Procope. <laughs> you have to tell me how that goes because then if somebody, I don't know if anybody ever does this when they hear a swear word that they don't understand, but if anybody ever asks you about it. Um, no, we're not that friendly. It would be nice if instead of fighting, we could just say, well, the uh, provenance of this swear word was from a friend in France and she'd say, that'd be nice. And then we could go grab a socially distanced coffee, me and the person I want to fight with. Um, so tell us a little bit. So one thing is I want the audience to know that you do a lot of very cool stuff and you got me involved in something just very recently to our recording, which is um, something you did for Muse by Cleo. And mm -hmm. it's a series called Reinventions, which I love, by the way, I read the other reinventions, not just yeah. reading mine 55 times, but um, they're really, really good. And they're excellent. So I want to know how you got involved in that. But more importantly, or equally importantly, like you're obviously, you can tell by your regular accent, you're not born and bred in Paris. So what's your story of how you got to Paris? I know you've been there for a while because you've been Paris-based since we've known each other virtually. Yeah. And, uh, and kind of where you see things going. And also, if you want to throw in anything about the virus, I'm sure we can share some, some living under lockdown stories. But the floor is yours. In fact, you're doing better at this. This should be the next level podcast with Angela Natividad, and I'll just come on once in a while. <laughs> I don't know. I think that would do you an enormous disservice. And your, your clientele <laughs> would quickly be like, I don't know what's happening. I think they'd be fine, but go ahead. <laughs> this place has gone to seed. <laughs> let me let me think, because there, there are many things nested in what you're asking. Uh, OK, so 
I arrived in France 12 years ago. It was 12 years in January. And, um, and it's kind of a cliche story, right? When I was young, I, I grew up in California. That's where I was born. And uh, I had always wanted to go and I just had this general affinity, like I had always had it. Maybe it's because I'm a writer and that's, you know, that's kind of like the Mecca where writers end up. And, uh, but it took me a long time to actually get there. Traveling wasn't really part of the DNA of, you know, the family that I grew up in. Um, well, in, at least in terms of our family life. Um, so when I was in college, when I, like when I was finishing college, I thought, okay, I'm going to go on vacation for a couple of weeks and I'm just going to see about it, you know, um, and, uh, just kind of get it out of my system. So I went to Paris and also Bordeaux and also Lyon to, uh, to just, yeah, to find out what I liked about it and see why it was calling me and, uh, and go home and return to my life. By then I was already a marketing director for a startup and I kind of had you know, things figured out, I guess, in terms of trajectory in the US. Um, and nothing special happened, but I came back with this feeling of, uh, oh, I get it. Like I feel right there and I think I need to go. Um, I don't really know why, and uh, I don't think it's a wise idea to go as a student because that's a dead end after a while. Uh, penetrating the workforce seems too complicated because um, the burden to, you know, like pay a person to come to another country is very high. I think it's like that in any country because you have sure. to the value of that person versus a citizen. So I thought, uh, okay, I think I need to become a freelancer. And uh, the only thing I really know how to do that I've always ever really known how to do is write. I guess. So, um, so I started applying to all of these blogs that were big at the time. <laughs> and, uh, and I wrote a bunch of like cocky, silly emails. Um, like, you know, I'm the best, you should hire me, you know, you won't regret it. And, um, and I got lucky because uh, AdRants, which was big in the advertising world at the time, uh, decided to take a chance. And uh, so Steve Hall, who was operating AdRants, he had me write for him six times a day for free for six months. Nice, and good deal, Steve. <laughs> but you know, you're young, you're in your early 20s, you don't know yet, you don't know. <laughs> and, um, and after six months, like to Steve's credit, he was like, uh, things are going really well, I think that I should pay you for this. And uh, so he started paying me. And then a few months later, he said, I'm actually part of a publishing community called Watershed. And um, the editor of Marketing Vox, which is also part of this publishing house, is leaving. And we would like to offer you that position. So I was able all of a sudden to support myself as a freelancer on these two publications. And uh, so I quit my job, my very comfortable job with its benefits, and, uh, and became a freelance writer. The freelance transition was obviously really complicated. Like I'm sure everybody who's experimented with working from home over the past year has lived through what I lived through. You know, like you have to develop a discipline at home, which is not necessarily easy. And, um, and uh, so I was doing that for a year, but I was still uh, too chicken to move to France. So I moved to New York first. And, uh, and then finally, I made the jump to France and I thought that I would stay for just three months under something called the Schengen visa, you know? Yep. The, yeah. Sure. The 90 days. Yeah. 89 days. And then you get out of town. Yeah. Yes. 
exactly. So I thought, okay, I can stay for three months under the Schengen visa. That's plenty of time. It's much more than two weeks. And uh, I can get this out of my system. And, uh, and then I can go home and, you know, continue my life because then I will have like given this a shot legitimately. Um, so I stayed for three months. But what happened was uh, I got lucky in the sense that at the time, Marketing Vox was a really important digital marketing reference and AdRance was a very important advertising reference. So the advertising community in Paris already knew of me. And uh, when I arrived, they were inviting me to conferences. They were offering me different kinds of jobs. They wanted to have really interesting conversations. So by the time I went back to the US after the three months were over, I had this really weird feeling of, uh, oh, I'm actually leaving the beginning of a life. Like, um, and this seems important not to let go of because uh, there's something that I started designing over there that, uh, that, you know, like I think it's the reason why I came in the first place. So I began the formal visa process when I returned to the US. It took about a month. And then uh, I jumped back again with this idea that I'll stay for a year. <laughs> Um, and I just kept doing that, you know, staying for a year, renewing my visa every year. At the time, I had a long state tourist visa. After the second year, they offered me a freelancer visa. And, uh, and then six years in, I was able to apply for nationality. And then, you know, little by little, it was kind of like, I think I've been an adult in Paris longer than I was in the US. You know, I became a very different kind of person. Totally. Yeah. So... That's the first part of your question answered. Um, and it's a great answer. It really is a great answer. That's uh, <laughs> and it's and it's such you know it's such an exceptional tale, in that if you so, if you would dissect the same thing. No, I mean no. But the thing is, if you would dissect your stuff into all of the things that could have gone wrong, all the <laughs> obstacles that would have kept you from staying longer in Paris is like a thousand of them, and you beat every single one. That is true. And I think uh, maybe you can speak to this as well. It is the case that immigration does change your brain. Like, um, you know, you just, uh, you really realize how important politics are in a culture. Like uh, I went to Berkeley, so I think I, I cared about politics in terms of like, that's what you do as, a, as an informed citizen. But uh, I think this idea of what we were fighting for was largely, this is terrible to say, but I think it was largely an abstraction because, you know, you're born somewhere, you're protected in theory. Um, but when you're an immigrant, it's kind of like, I think the first thought that I had when I became a citizen, um, and they had us watch the video, you know, of like, oh, these are your responsibilities. And now you're among the French, but you're also part of the Europeans, but also you can be called to war, like, you know, like all of these responsibilities that are laying on your shoulders. Um, I think the first thing that I thought was, um, oh my God, I can have a bar fight now. <laughs> like, the first thing I was thinking when you were describing that is actually somebody walking down the street eating a baguette in real time. <laughs> but anybody can do that anytime. Yeah, but it's really like you don't see that. I mean, we we buy baguettes in Montreal. I don't see people literally eating them as they walk. But in Paris, it's like it's an apple. Yeah, that is true. That is true. Well, it's such a fixture, right? It's like having a handbag. You might as well. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Well, what are you missing? I'm missing my baguette. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so that, listen, that's a great, you know, kind of beginning to your story. So it was then over time that you began to feel, you know, not like these bad versions of Americans living in France, but actually as someone who was definitely becoming French living in France with, you know, an American background. 
Well, I think that you have to, particularly as an Anglo-Saxon, um, I think that you have to make a choice because uh, I took a, I had a professor, like I studied French all of school, but as you know, language is a thing that's alive. So I came with this very 70s French, like still calling parties booms. <laughs> yeah. Nice. That so was not very useful. So, uh, so I had this woman come to my house and teach me French every week. And, uh, and she conveyed this really interesting thing to me that I never forgot. She said, uh, you know, depending on the culture, not to generalize, but depending on the culture, there are different um, averages by which people are willing to learn French. You know, um, the Spanish or Italians, they'll learn a little bit and be like, okay, that's enough. I can get by. Um, the Germans are extremely precise and technical and French is a very technical language. So they will learn it. <laughs> they will learn the crap out of it. Yeah, it and, also gets them out of Germany. Yeah. But that's, <laughs> that's another story for another time having lived there for four years. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so curious about your German stories. I'll tell you, we got a few minutes left. You go ahead. But she, she also said that when you're American or English, particularly when you're American, um, the vast majority barely bother to learn it at all. They can live in these little diasporas and, uh, and they live among Americans or English and they never really fully integrate. And a lot of them are fine that way for many of their lives. I have a couple of friends like that. You know, they have French wives, they have French children, um, but they, they don't speak French. And, uh, and I do find that... Um, you do, you do miss something, not only about the nuances of the culture, but also about the way that your brain changes when you learn a new language, because one of the things that you learn is that language is a framework for approaching the world. And uh, yeah, you, you learn to think differently. And I think that was one of the bigger things that I learned in this process. And that really felt like immigration to me. That's super well said. And I love your observation about, you know, Americans being one nationality, but definitely one that can live insularly. It's the exact same thing in Berlin. Mm. So in Berlin, which is not the first, I've lived all over the world, so many different places, but Berlin <laughs> is definitely a place where you had two choices. Either you were just gonna hang out with people who spoke English and there were certain parts of town where you did that. We made a conscious decision to live in a part of town where there was no one who spoke English. It was actually the part of town where the secret police used to live, the old Stasi. So really? it was quite nice. It was right on a park and right on water. It was still just on the ring of the city. It was mm. a part of town called Weizensee. I think they made a big uh, Netflix series about it or something. But nonetheless, you were very, very isolated if your goal was to speak English and you were living a very East Berlin existence. Because no matter what they say about Berlin today, there's still East Ber Berlin and West Berlin, practically. Yeah, and I those mean, cultures are extremely different. Yeah. Oh, you extremely different in, in the, the way people carry themselves, how they think, what they eat, what they drink. It's a totally different thing in one city. And I'm with you. I mean, I think if you're going to commit to living somewhere, the language is an important thing as far as respect goes, but it's also an important thing about being finding positive ways to integrate into the country. I know that comes with a lot of political baggage like it has in Scandinavia and a lot of other parts of the world, but I don't know, it seems to me like Americans going to Paris and you know picking up 15 words of French is, is kind of a huge wasted opportunity. But what do you think makes it, because you're this way, so I can ask you, because I can't ask myself, um, what do you think makes it so that you choose difficulty, even if you have an alternative, which is ostensibly fine, lots of people are doing it. What do you think it is about a person that makes them choose that difficulty? I think that, so this, this ties back to the series that you're writing about reinventions. 
The only yeah. people who you could write about with reinventions are people who made a conscious decision to reinvent or out of necessity found themselves once or multiple times needing to reinvent. I'm one of those people that always made a conscious choice to reinvent because like I said in the piece, if I get bored, I find very creative ways to get into trouble. And when I'm not bored, I don't get into trouble. I mean, I know that about me. I've known that about me since I was a mischievous only child, you know, with, with one parent who traveled all the time and the other parent who was doing her own thing. So I get that. Um, it just, it made sense. I've traveled over 3 million miles. I've lived in Scandinavia. I've lived in Beijing. I've lived in a whole bunch of different places all over the United States. It always seemed to me from the second I was on the ground, like when I lived in Beijing, I had two choices. Do I live in a Western community? Or do I try to live to like a quote unquote Western standard, but in a Chinese community? And the answer was always the latter. Like, why would I just want to be surrounded? I don't want to speak English. I want to use my five words of Mandarin and try to get to seven. Um, and I want to eat what local people are eating. I don't want burgers because then why would I live in China? That, that's at least my, so I think that that challenge comes with a lot of good stuff which is why when we were actually, we were thinking of moving to France before coming back to Canada when the virus yeah. hit. Yeah. So we looked in Dijon, we looked in Reims, we looked in Saint-Étienne, we looked in Paris, we looked in a bunch of cool places. And we were gonna, no matter where we chose, we would be somewhere where we had to function all the time in French. Yes. That's, that's at least my uh, opinion on it. And I've got another, as we're wrapping up yeah. in our half hour, I have a question for you. Okay. It's, important, it's an important food question. So okay. everybody talks about like, oh, Lyon, 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 and you brought up Lyon before. Mm -hmm. um, so comparing the food in Lyon and Paris, not just the food culture, I'm not saying Lyon doesn't have a great food culture, but is it overdone? Is the food in Lyon so much better than anywhere else in France? Uh, so, okay, to be fair, I don't have a ton of memory of what I ate in Lyon, and I was like a kid, right? So I was like mostly a hostile kid. But uh, what I know about food outside Paris, this is a horrible generalization, and you're asking about Lyon specifically, and I feel this is a horrible thing to say. <laughs> we, can, we can make it to outside Paris, not just Lyon proper. <laughs> Okay, so uh, I think that, okay, so the French ha have a very long culture of uh, gastronomy, right? Like it's a, it's a world renowned culture of gastronomy. Um, I think that Paris has a certain advantage and I would say Marseille as well in terms of this, uh, in terms of uh, the fact that these cities are in many ways ports. So they are constantly cross pollinating and because of that cross pollination, because of so many people passing through, um, not even just to live, but also to do business. Like there's just so much frenzy and density there. Um, these are cultures that not only have a lot of food diversity, but also um, have been able to modernize as tastes have changed. Um, I, I'm not saying that that's not the case for Lyon or elsewhere in France at all. But I, I do find that elsewhere in France, uh, what I often find is um, a very traditional French style of food in the sense that uh, there's a lot of sauce, a lot of butter, it often feels quite heavy. And, uh, and this is something that I think Speaking as somebody who is not a chef, <laughs> that I think uh, was very trendy in the 80s when there was just a lot of excess in everything, but is not necessarily the case elsewhere. But I do also know that Lyon has a very strong gastronomic culture that I'm not doing justice to at all. <laughs> so. I, I personally think that's a fantastic answer. Like, I mean, so this, this notion of the bouchon, which is very, very popular in Lyon and all these small cities, you know, like you said, heavy, I mean, yeah, heavy is an understatement, 
but it's three course meals. It's got to be. There's no way that these three course meals are under five or six thousand calories. There's yeah. just no way. Oh. That's not even counting the wine. But every once in a while, there is not. We have. I have one particular favorite bouchon in in Dijon, even okay. better I think than the ones in Lyon. And you sit there, and you know the courses are probably you're starting with escargot, and then you're going into something like beautiful tripe, and some really rich dessert. But every once in a oh. while, there's nothing in the world that will hit you like that. And I think one thing I loved about your explanation about Paris actually relates to my experience in China. So okay. there's a huge fight all throughout China as to who makes the best roast duck, one of the national dishes. I love roast and duck. It's amazing. And I'll give you why I always say to people Beijing. And of course, I don't have the guts to say that places like Shanghai because they think they have the best or anywhere else. It's sure. because Beijing being such an international city and the national capital attracts the best chefs from all over the country. So mm -hmm. even though I've been in Chengdu um, and love Sichuan food, the Sichuan food in Beijing, the top Sichuan food, is actually better than in Sichuan province because the top chefs would rather live and create in Beijing. So when you have a city like Paris, the natural advantages of people who might have been born and raised in, I don't know, in somewhere like Saint-Étienne, not necessarily a food capital, but hone their craft in Paris and decide to keep their creativity and their business there is kind of an advantage that other cities can't overcome. That's at least my opinion. Okay, so I know that we have to close soon, but can I ask you a question? Of course. Given, uh, given this description that you've given of Beijing and why uh, not only roast duck is better there, but even Sichuan food is better there. <laughs> um, are you an advocate of the idea that um, a really big explosion of creativity and innovation is not only a question of time, but a question of place? Like advocates of this idea would say the Italian Renaissance could only have happened not only at that time, but specifically in Italy for reasons X, Y, and Z, in the same way that Silicon Valley can only be in Silicon Valley in the sense that it's a renaissance. Do you think that those so things are true? There's a ton to unpack there. There's a ton to unpack there. So I do think it's time and place. I think the place can be artificially created. I really okay. do. So really? I'll, t I'll tell you why. So for example, everybody talks all the time, like you mentioned in Silicon Valley, and I'm glad you did because I wanted to bring that up. But if you think about Silicon Valley, I actually think that the future of Silicon Valley in the United States are the buffaloes of the world. And I had somebody on my podcast last week who started a company that just IPO'd at a buffalo. And I think that whatever kind of recovery is gonna happen in the United States is gonna happen from Cleveland and Buffalo and places like that. It's not gonna happen from the Valley. So if you look at it from within the French context, Yes. I think that there are, you know, tier two and tier two three cities as they're described in France, okay. where, you know, innovation collisions can happen. So innovation doesn't just happen to have, have to happen in Paris and Berlin and all of these places that are the quote unquote innovation capitals. But I do believe it's the correct era. It's the correct place. And I would add, it's people like you who have to exist to catalyze it. Why? Because without people like you and the kind of things that you do, then what you end up with, and I've seen this a lot in the legal innovation world, mm -hmm. you end up with companies throwing money into shiny offices in cool cities. And what they're doing is basically just checking all the boxes. And if there's somebody like you behind it, you are able to convince those companies, great, you want to spend 10 million euro, that's fine. I'm going to get you 100 million euro worth of value out of your 10 million euro, or do what everybody else did. Flush your 10 million euro down the toilet, 
and then come back to me and we'll spend the next 10 million together. I think that's where we're going with these collisions. And that's why the people are more important than ever, especially when people are able to get back in the streets in a year now, you know, yeah. whenever we're able to get out again. Yeah, someday. <laughs> yeah. It has I'm been sorry. an amazing pleasure having you on the podcast. We definitely have to do it again. And I'm serious. You should be doing a podcast slash video cast. I volunteer to be a guest. I would much rather be on the <laughs> other end of this conversation with you because you are awesome and the best. And thank you again for including me in the Muse by Clio Reinventions. And I'll put a link to that in our podcast as well. Yeah, I loved your answers and you clearly have a lot to teach me as well. So if I have to launch a podcast to mine you, I will have to. <laughs> Thanks a lot, everybody. Take care. Bye.